powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello! Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's Better, H-E-L-P dot com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a big thank you to my last guest, Dr. Candace Candy Campbell. If you have not heard our very in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to episode 206, and we have a fantastic episode lined up for you today. We have on the show John Levy. John is a behavioral scientist and a New York Times bestselling author. John will be discussing his research, his incredibly popular TED Talk, his first book, Founding the Famous Influencers Dinner, and we'll be discussing his best-selling new book, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Connection, Trust, and Belonging. With John's tight schedule, we were very lucky to get him, so let's get him out here. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show, calling in today from his home in New York City, the founder of The Influencers Dinner and New York Times bestselling author, John Levy. John, hello. Welcome to the Derek of All Show. How is the weather out by you today? Oh, it is raining and dreary, but I have a newborn, so it is bright and sunny and shiny in my home. So with the pandemic now winding down, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Holy cow. So I am really driven by social interaction. I need people around me all the time. Initially, the early days of the pandemic were like kind of a relief, no more flights because I'm constantly flying, speaking at companies, all that. And I was like, wow, I'm so productive. And then I saw myself getting progressively more like down and frustrated and kind of sad. And my wife's like, you need to get out of the house. <laughs> this, is, this is not healthy for you. But I was so strict about COVID because my wife is also pregnant at some point, you know. It was uh, it was wild for me. Right on. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like to grow up there? I was born in the town of Tel Aviv, Israel, which is currently uh, in a bit of a state of panic. My summers were spent there and my school year was spent here in the U.S. My parents are uh, artists. My father was a painter and sculptor. My mom's a composer and conductor. During the summers, I was following my dad around through the Yemenite quarter, uh, you probably wouldn't be able to look at me and guess this, but my father's side of the family is from Yemen and my mother's side is Dutch. So I look very white, even though my family isn't. I was occasionally going to the beach and then running around the Carmel market and following my dad to meetings and art stuff. And 
uh, and school year here in New York and the Upper West Side. What were some of your like you know your earliest career aspirations? Oh my God, I don't know. When I was a child, I wanted to be one of the Autobots from the Transformers, uh, but <laughs> I don't know if that's something you aspire to being a car. I guess now with the Fast and the Furious series, more people are. I don't know. I think what I wanted to do was have some kind of impact. You know, it's one of these issues of uh, as a behavioral scientist, and I, there's this thing called the mere exposure effect, which is we tend to like and trust things we see more often. And so if we're not exposed to something as an option, it never occurs to us to aspire to be that. And that's what, one of the reasons people often talk about the importance of inclusion in film and television is that when we can set an example of somebody doing something that looks like us, we believe that it's something we can do. And it never occurred to me that I could go into the sciences in any meaningful way. I don't know why, even though my brother eventually became a doctor and a PhD and the other one also, but it wasn't until later in life that I went into the sciences. Yeah, that's interesting. For my listeners who might not be familiar with it, what is the Dwight School? <laughs> the Dwight School is a private school on the Upper West Side. It's a kind of wild place that often, at least when I went there in the 90s, was where a lot of other kids of kind of prominent families went. We were probably the, the poorest family there among them, right? Compared to, I went to school with Paris Hilton and the Johnson Johnson kids and like all these kind of wealthy, kind of New York established families. And then I didn't even know that I was going to school with any of them because I was there for something called the International Baccalaureate. It's kind of like this international standard for completing high school. And my goal was just to like do really well so I could skip some of college going in. Uh, I was super geeky, right? Like <laughs> I was not the kid invited to parties. I was not the kid that had a girlfriend or anything like that. I was the kid that like was in the science and computer science and engineering classes. Mm. Like, you know, I'd have been relegated to the geek table if we had a cafeteria. <laughs> what are your favorite memories from your time at NYU? Oh God. I uh, had a bunch of friends that I, I made there and we would invent games and go out and play them. And so we, you know, we did everything from like a drunken dodgeball bonanza to different invented card games or activities, scavenger hunts through the city, like you name it. Uh, we were just trying to be creative and find fun ways to spend our weekends rather than just like go to a bar and drink. And I think that those are what I enjoyed the most was doing the thing that never occurred anybody else to do. What is it about human behavior that fascinates you so much? I would say that we are completely irrational and people keep thinking that if you apply logic, something will make sense. Now, what's interesting about how irrational we are is that we are consistent in our rationality. So we will do things that are completely ridiculous, like loss aversion. Human beings experience anywhere from two and a half to five times as much pain from losing something as the pleasure of gaining it. So if you lose $100, that pain is so intense, you have to find about $250 to $500 to make up for it. Now, that doesn't make any sense. 
If you lose $100, I should be able to just give you $100 and it equals out. And that's what I find really fascinating is that we have all these biases built into us that make us wildly irrational. And if we understand how they work, maybe we can kind of hack ourselves to a better life. I want to talk to you about your very first book, The 2AM Principle, Discover the Science of Adventure. At what point in your research did you decide to write this book? Oh, wow. I wanted to write that book back in my 20s, but I didn't think anybody would would pay me to write it, <laughs> frankly. And so it sat in a drawer for years, the initial ideas. And then I showed it to an author that attended one of my dinners and he said, oh, you're onto something here. And it rekindled. This was like, I don't know, 2011, 2012. It rekindled my desire to, to do it. And I went out and found a, a publisher. And I think what I really wanted to do was kind of see if I could get somebody to pay me to go on adventures <laughs> and then write about it. And that was... That was kind of like the the ridiculous true story behind it is I was like, I want to travel. Will somebody give me money? I don't really care if I make money off of the book. Can I just get a whole bunch of money and tell people and then tell my stories? And then I researched the science behind it as I was collecting stories traveling. The book breaks down the 2 a.m. principle into like a full part structure of established push boundaries, increase and continue. How did you arrive at these stages? I because uh throughout college and then after i was doing all these kind of non-traditional fun activities like i mentioned the scavenger hunts the games all that kind of stuff um i would have photos of everything you know pixar didn't happen kind of thing uh this is pre-social media to any meaningful degree and so i started looking through all the photos and people would say Oh, what a random night this happened, that happened. I'd say, no, that doesn't make sense. It wasn't random. There wasn't an equal chance of us ending up in a dance-off with Usher and us, you know, watching a movie at home. Like that's, it's not random. Random suggests equal probability. There must be something that we're doing that actually causes us to live more exciting lives. What is it? And by looking through the photos, I started finding patterns emerge and I began to see, wait, oh, that person was there. That person, wow, that person's there quite often when we do something crazy. Okay, people is clearly a major component of this because if you don't have the right people around you, it's going to be a quiet night. You know, you could be at the best party in the world, but with the wrong group of people and it's miserable. Hmm. And you could be, at the dumbest place in the world with the right group and just have the time of your life. So clearly the most important factor is the people you're with. Hmm. And then we, I kind of broke down factor after factor and that's how it was built. Hmm. How important has that book been to your career? Ooh, important in the sense that it proved to me that I can, I'm a decent writer. I'm dyslexic. I didn't think I could write. It came out on November 8th. 2016. So from a career standpoint, that was possibly the worst day that year that that book could have come out. It was election day, Trump was elected, and nobody was reading or buying books. Everybody was 
consuming news, trying to understand what was happening next. And so from a career standpoint, it was good also because I people were inviting me to speak and give talks and all that. But if I had written a different book at that same time or released that book a little later, I think it would have been much better for my mm -hmm. career. You mentioned talks. Now, you join a very select list of Derek Duvall Show guests who have done a TED Talk. Oh, yeah, yeah. For my listeners who will check it out after this is over, and we will have a link in the show notes, please do tell my listeners what that TED Talk was about. It's about uh, the basics of what makes somebody influential. So we have this impression that, oh, we first of all, nowadays we hear the word influencer, we think like avocado toast and TikTok dances. We don't think influence as a byproduct of kind of who we want to have an effect on. And so this breaks down what makes somebody influential and to what scale and the science behind it. And let me tell you, prepping for a TED Talk was insanity. I mean, it takes, I think on average, 100 hours of preparation. So that's like taking off of work for two and a half weeks just to practice, write, and prepare a talk, which is the hardest I've ever worked for 12 minutes of my life. You know, it's, uh, it was insane. What emotions do you remember from giving that TED Talk? I don't usually get nervous on stage. And I was super nervous to the point that I, <laughs> I remember getting so thirsty that I had to stop the talk in the middle to chug a glass of water. And mind you, I'm on stage almost every week. Mm. Like I don't get bothered by anything. I just felt like Ted is one of these, you know, like one of the few places that everybody will see and notice and that I didn't want to miss my shot. And so I guess I was super nervous about it. Mm. Now you are the founder of influencers. Tell my mm -hmm. listeners exactly what that is. So I spend most of my life convincing people to come to my home, cook me dinner, wash my dishes, and clean my floors. And often they thank me for the experience. Uh, so that's kind of what it is, uh, if I were to describe it very ominously. <laughs> and then the, the real description is 13 years ago, I was curious what connects very influential people. It's kind of the topic of my dead talk to a large degree. And... What I decided to do was model the behavior of influential people to understand what causes them to connect and engage with each other. And based on my research, I created a secret dining experience. 12 people come. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. They cook a meal together. And when they sit down to eat, they get to guess what everybody else does. And they find out that it's astronauts and Olympians and CEOs and celebrities and Grammy award winners and so on and so forth. And so I've hosted 200, no, sorry, 325 dinners across 11 cities in four countries. They're completely free. And the objective is to build a community, to have people connect with each other and really feel a sense of belonging. That's incredible. Now the guest list is kept highly secret. So yes. I know you can't tell us who you've had at your dinner, but can you tell us some vague highlights or successes from the dinner? Uh, I mean, there are a few people that have been written up in articles. So I can say, you know, uh, 
Bill Nye and Rozelle, the legend, who's five-time Grammy nominee, I think two or three-time winner, and who else? I think Regina Spector's in one article, and so is uh, Princess Kalia Aga Khan, and you know, it's that kind of group. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy who did the voice of the dog from Who Let the Dogs Out, he won a Grammy for that. <laughs> it's it's all over the place. We've had a prime minister and we've had more Nobel laureates than I can keep track of. Tons of Olympians, a lot of swimmers, a lot of comedians, Nia Vardalos, Eliza Schlesinger, uh, Eric Maskin, who won the Nobel Prize in economics, Nathan Adrian, who's a multi-time Olympic medalist. I can mention all them because they gave blurbs for my book. What's what sort of highlights they do? They, is it like basically they sit around and they just talk about like, you know, the highlights of their life, and they basically just try to you know build build a community of that t- the table together and just try to network. So most of the time, I want networking because nobody knows who anybody is. Right. So it's not there's no objective of like business. The word networking, when you look at the research people's implicit association to it, how they feel about it, is they feel dirty. They feel like they're using a person for personal gain. And so it's unsatisfying. The association is that people want to wash their hands because they feel unclean. Now, people don't feel that way about the word friendship. And so our objective is to help people make friends. And because it's anonymous, most of the conversations are about the things that you probably talk to your friends about. So things like which vacations you went on, how the kids are doing, where you went to college, your favorite hobbies. Now, that's very different than if you're in a business setting where you're talking about what your company does and how big it is and blah, 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 and your listenership. And um, So I'd say most of the relationship building occurs while cooking. And then when you reach the point of the actual dinner, we're just playing a game to reveal what people do and we play a guessing game. And so around the dinner table, there isn't much. And then when people then clean up, then they, then maybe they talk shop and compare friends and work and all that. What's been the hardest objective? Is it basically inviting people to it and agreeing them to come? Oh God, it's uh, just the amount of effort that's required to put a dinner together. You To get to, 12 people at that level that are available on the same night, you have to research thousands of potential guests. You have to track down their contact info, invite hundreds of people, and then you end up with 12, 13, 14 in an evening. It's incredibly labor intensive. We have four people who that's their entire job, two researchers, a communications person, and a chief of staff. And all they do is run operations for dinners that cost me money. It's not a business. That's so it's also really important to marry the right person because when you're spending that much on feeding people without a business angle, it's, it's they have to be very understanding. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah. Okay, Deval Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with John Levy. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know who that's right, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. 
Pay attention to a few friends on my show, and we will be right back. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated, and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podcasticaudio.com slash easy. Hello, Duval Nation. Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek Duvall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Work Hours Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. Welcome back to episode 206 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with behavioral scientist, the founder of the Influencers Dinner, and New York Times bestselling author, John Levy. Now, you've written a book. You're mm -hmm. invited to Art and Science of Connection, Trust, and Belonging. What inspired you to write this book? Uh, I would probably say that, you know, I grew up a really lonely kid. I was super geeky in an era before... Now being a geek is kind of cool, right? You can have a startup, you can work at the most prestigious companies in the world. In the 80s and 90s, like, or especially early 90s, 
liking computers was a guarantee not to be popular. And so um, I wanted to understand what actually causes people to develop deep and meaningful relationships. And it turns out that literally everything we do to build trust, to connect, to create belonging, we do wrong or backwards. And this is really concerning because just about anything that matters to people is a byproduct of our relationships. So you want to look at the predictors of human longevity? On the really low end, it's like clean air and water, exercise, getting your flu shot, that kind of stuff. Really important, quitting drinking, quitting smoking is even more important. But number two is strong social ties, having close friends and family. And number one is something called social integration. It's the number of people you come in contact with in a day. And so for human beings, living a long time is predicated on relationships. Company stock value, employee sick days, profitability is tracked to the level of trust in an organization. When we look at teams, they operate best when they have psychological safety. This idea that I can express an opinion and not be worried that I'm going to be kicked out of the group because what I said goes against the group. And so ultimately, it's important for me to pe for people to understand how these things actually operate and then how to do things well so that the relationships in your life are meaningful and deep. Okay. We obviously want people to buy the book, but can you give us a tiny glimpse into the science of what it's like to create a, you know, a deep and meaningful connection with someone regardless of stature or celebrity? Because it's taken me three years to master it. And I feel my audience could benefit from your book greatly. No, I will not share that. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, so this is a little complex, right? Because we're asking a really big question. How do we develop deep and meaningful relationships? We spend our lifetimes getting better and better at that, hopefully. But let's start off with a few basics that are status independent, right? There are certain factors that are status dependent like people's availability, right? The higher profile they are, the more often they're scheduled to an extreme level. Let's ignore that for now because it's a big topic and let's get to the basics. Trust and connection are probably the two most basic things. Let's look at trust first. Now, trust is essentially a factor of our willingness to be vulnerable, right? If I, when we say, oh, I trust that person, it means there's a certain level of vulnerability that I'm willing to have with them. But there's this confusion. We think vulnerability comes after trust when it's actually the other way around. The most basic unit of trust is something called a vulnerability loop. So uh, Derek, do you have any kids? I do not. All right. Do you have any pets? I have three dogs. Okay. So imagine I come to you about to get my first pet and I go, Derek, we're about to adopt this dog. I'm freaking out. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never cared for a dog. I don't know what food to buy. I have no clue what's going on. In that moment, I've signaled vulnerability. Yes? Yes. Now you have a choice. You can either ignore me, make fun of me, or you can respond in some way. If you ignore or make fun of, my vulnerability has just been punished. So trust will be reduced. 
But if you acknowledge it and say, John, I totally get it. Before I got my first dog, I was a little nervous that they would destroy the house. I have no idea how to take care of them. The moment you acknowledge what I say and then signal vulnerability at the same level in return, trust increases to that higher level. This is called a vulnerability loop. Person one signals, person two acknowledges, person two signals, person one acknowledges, trust increases. And here's what's interesting about this, that the key is to start small and go big. You want to stack. So if I want to build trust with you, I'm not going to start day one talking to you about I don't know. People come into the office. No, I'm very happily married, but like talking about their divorce. That's like an overshare, right? That loop is too big for somebody to close effectively. So we want to start small. And I might say something about, I might crack a joke at work, whisper something to you, right? And that's a small loop. And then I'll keep opening and closing those loops bigger and bigger. And that's how friendships are actually formed. So the key is to understand vulnerability precedes trust. If we want people to trust us, we need to be on the lookout when they open a loop by sharing something and make sure that we close it. And it's on us to open loops at an appropriate size. Otherwise, have you ever been in that situation where you share something and right after you're like, oh my God, why did I just share that? Yes. Yeah. That's called like a vulnerability hangover, <laughs> right? Like it. You had a little too much and the next day you're feeling like a jerk. Yes. Yeah. Now here's the issue. Do you remember we talked about loss aversion? Yes. The reason that feels so bad is that we feel a lot worse about doing something wrong than how good we feel about doing something right. And so the negative feels a lot worse than it is or than the positives that we have. So the key is to understand that it's worth the risk of messing up occasionally because without it, we're going to be lonely, isolated, and in a worse situation anyway. Hmm. So that's one of the basics. Another basic is that, have you ever been out at a business dinner before? Yes. All right. On a scale from one to 10, how enjoyable are those on average? About, about six. Wow, you're going to some good business dinners. Most executives at companies will say like a two or a three. And the reason is that we think that if I take you out for a meal, you're going to trust me more. Now, that might be true to some degree. But it's kind of like me saying, hey, Derek, I know you don't like my personality, but I have Taylor Swift tickets. Let's go out. Right? I'm trying to buy your time in hopes that it will cause you to like me and trust me. The weird thing is that that doesn't actually work too well. What works is something called the Ikea effect. And the Ikea effect is that we care more about our Ikea furniture because we have to assemble it. Which means that as we look at the way we interact with people, our objective needs to shift from everything I'm going to do or give them to what is it that I could ask of them that would actually get them to care more for me? Is it their opinion? Is it a small favor? And this is counterintuitive because we think that we need to buy relationships. Now, here's what's really, really important. Yes, you can ask things of people. Yes, you should start small and go big over time. 
but it's critical that there's reciprocity because otherwise you're just a taker and people will not like you and you will develop a bad reputation. Yeah. I that's very well said. I agree. What has the reaction to the book been like? People hated it. No, I'm kidding. They loved it. It was a, a New York Times bestseller, Wall Street Journal bestseller. It was on the Wall Street Journal list for like weeks and weeks. It's translated into a whole slew of languages, none of which I can mildly understand. I went to Korea with it. It's in Russian, Turkish, Czech, Vietnamese, complex and simple Chinese, yada, yada, like on and on. It was selected by the Wall Street Journal as one of 12 books to read for a smart year. And it was Wall Street Journal's book of the month. So it opened to great fanfare and I'm really, really proud of it. It made my Jewish mother quite proud. <laughs> Pierre de Coubertin said the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. John, you get a chance to talk to your younger self. What would you say to him? Start hosting dinner sooner in life. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think that the greatest gift I ever got was people cooking me a terrible meal in all seriousness. And if I would have known the impact that it would have had, I would have started that earlier. The other would have been, I would have been happier if I met my wife at a younger age. She is just such a wonderful person. Uh, and I'm disappointed that we, we're going to have a long life together, but I'm disappointed that we don't have more years already together. So apart from the release of the book, uh, what's next for John? I'm working on the next book. It's about how we overvalue the leader and undervalue the teams. Not that leaders aren't important. It's just, we don't give enough credit to the context and the people around the leader. Other than that, I'm constantly working on trying to figure out how to make companies, organizations, teams really flourish and have leaders be able to be at their best to help those teams flourish. We're really doing just about everything wrong or backwards. And it's kind of amusing and kind of frankly a little sad, but you know, hopefully we can have an impact and, and really make people's work experiences fantastic. As we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question. John, mm -hmm. what do you like to do for fun? How do you like to relax? Oh, wow. So far, it's going a lot of... I have a five-month-old. So making funny noises as she giggles, because hearing her giggle is fantastic. And then uh, if you want, I'm more than happy to keep making the noises, seeing if you like them. But <laughs> the uh, the other is I'm a big AAA gamer, meaning like all the very high-end games. And last night at midnight, the new Spider-Man 2 came out. And I'm very excited to, while my child is napping, try to save the city of New York, most likely, from some evil. I don't know what yet, but, you know, heroes are needed in this world. And that's my, the closest <laughs> I'll be to, to running into a burning building or something as, as Spider-Man. Fair enough. All right. What would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Wow. Okay. So I have a, I'm active on LinkedIn, John Levy, J-O-N-L-E-V-Y. I'm, I have an Instagram. I'll respond to messages every so often there. And then I have a newsletter called Being Influenced. Uh, you can find everything you want on me at johnlevy.com, J-O-N-L-E-V-Y.com. And I'm also super responsive. If anybody has questions, I'm more than happy to email with somebody. So please reach out. Okay. 
John, I could keep talking to you forever, but unfortunately we have to wrap this up. So I will end my interview with my favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of earth? Wow. That, no pressure, Derek. No pressure. Uh, wow. That is a lot of responsibility. I don't know if I have a great answer for that. You know, there's this great challenge of, uh, by Richard Feynman. And Richard Feynman said, what is the most amount, if all of civilization were to end today, but we have the ability to send one message to the next civilization that grows, what would be the most amount of information you could share with the least amount of words? And he came up with this whole thing where he was able to break down science into three sentences that were like the basic structures of science. But I don't know if, like the, the big conclusion around it was that I don't know if it would translate because so much is contextual. And I feel like it's a huge responsibility to communicate to all of the world and yes, messages of love and all that, but I don't know if those have any impact. I would want... I would actually want to share a message of doubt. I, I'd have to really think through how to present it, but I'd want to put people in a situation where they experience an intense uncertainty about what they're really sure of, because I don't think more information will make a huge impact on people's lives. But I do think that making them uncertain of the things they're really positive about has the potential to open their minds in curiosity. So I don't know what I would say, but I do think I'd want to come up with a clever way to make people unsure. All right. The book is You're Invited, The Art and Science of Connection, Trust, and Belonging, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy your books online. John, this has been a tremendous honor to have you on the show. Thanks for taking the time to come on today. Uh, Derek, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. And listeners, please reach out. I'm more than happy to hear from you. And thanks for taking the time to listen to me ramble. <laughs> and just like that, Deval Nation, we come to the end of episode 206. I want to thank John for taking the time out of his absolutely incredibly busy schedule to speak with me. What a great guy. And I do hope we get to hear from him again down the road. John, sir, you are welcome back on the show anytime, my friend. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. We drop our episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for those episodes to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the Amazing Tea Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there, and with everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, go to the banner that lets us at merch, click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tea Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show.
On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, Thanksgiving is this week for our American listeners. I hope everyone has a safe week traveling and spending time with family and friends. Take time to soak in all the memories and conversations. Memories are very important to preserve. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.